Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Wednesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I'm your host, literally Heather. I told you guys about Kim Jong-un launching a ballistic missile over Japan. So in response, the United States and South Korea launched four missiles off the east coast of the Korean Peninsula yesterday morning. Uh, The test was the Allies' second exercise in under 24 hours following a provocative launch from North Korea, which fired a ballistic missile without warning over Japan in a significant escalation of its weapons testing program. The United States and South Korea initially responded to the provocation with a precision bombing exercise on Tuesday, which involved a South Korean F-15K fighter jet firing two air-to-surface munitions at a virtual target in a firing range west of the Korean Peninsula, per the South Korean Joint Chiefs. The Allies typically respond to missile tests by North Korea with military exercises. Wednesday's launch included four ATACMS missiles, also known as Army Tactical Missile Systems. Such weapons are surface-to-surface missiles that can fly around 200 miles. According to John Kirby, the National Security Council Coordinator for Strategic Communications, the launch was designed to demonstrate that the United States and its allies have the military capabilities at the ready to respond to provocations by the North. Analysts say there's little that the United States and its allies can do to stop Kim's relentless weapons buildup. The North Koreans are in no mood to talk. They're in the mood of testing and blowing things up. North Korea is going to keep conducting missile tests until the current round of modernization is done. I don't think a nuclear test explosion is far behind. Every time North Korea launches a weapon, they learn, they get better, and they get more capable. Similar to what we saw in Sri Lanka, daily life in Haiti has begun to spin out of control in the last month, just hours after Prime Minister Ariel Henry said fuel subsidies would be eliminated, causing prices to double. Gunshots rang out as protesters blocked roads with iron gates and mango trees. Then, Haiti's most powerful gang took a drastic step. It dug trenches to block access to the Caribbean country's largest fuel terminal, vowing, not to budge until Henry resigns and prices for fuel and basic goods go down. The poorest country in the Western Hemisphere is in the grips of an inflationary vice that is squeezing its citizenry and exacerbating protests that have been brought that have brought society to the breaking point. Violence is raging. It's making parents afraid to send their children to school. Fuel and clean water are scarce. Hospitals, banks, and grocery stores are struggling to stay open. The president of neighboring Dominican Republic described the situation as a low-intensity civil war. Life in Haiti is always extremely difficult, if not downright dysfunctional, but the magnitude of the current paralysis and despair is unprecedented. Political instability has simmered ever since last year's unresolved assassination of Haiti's president. Inflation is soaring around 30% and has only aggravated the situation. If they don't understand us, we're going to make them understand. This was said by a gentleman who was marching with uh, protesters. 
The fuel depot blocked by gangs has been inoperable since September 12th, cutting off 10 million gallons of diesel and gasoline and more than 800,000 gallons of kerosene that are stored on site. Many gas stations are closed. Others are quickly running out of supplies. The lack of fuel recently forced hospitals to cut back critical services and prompted water delivery companies to shut down. Banks and grocery stores are struggling to stay open because of dwindling fuel supplies and exorbitant prices that make it nearly impossible for most workers to commute. A gallon of gasoline costs $30 on the black market in Port-au-Prince and more than $40 in rural areas. Desperate people are walking for miles to get food and water because public transportation is extremely limited. Henry's de facto government doesn't seem to be phased by the chaos, though, and is probably benefiting from it because it allows him to hold on to power and prolong as long as possible the organization of new elections. This article goes into more depth and detail about how Haiti got into the situation they're in, but the photographs tell a story that's difficult to look at. Cholera is on the uptick. Children aren't going to school. It gives perspective as to how first world our problems here in the United States really are and how grateful we should be that we live in the greatest country in the world. The tumultuous saga of Elon Musk's on-again, off-again purchase of Twitter took a turn toward a conclusion Tuesday after the CEO proposed to buy the company at the originally agreed-upon price of $44 billion. Musk made the surprising turnaround, not on Twitter, as has been his custom, but in a letter to Twitter that the company disclosed in a filing on Tuesday with the SEC. It came less than two weeks before a trial. The two parties are scheduled to start in Delaware. In response, Twitter said it intends to close the transaction at $54.20 per share after receiving the letter from Musk. But the company stopped short of saying it's dropping its lawsuit against Elon. Experts say that makes sense given the contentious relationship and lack of trust between the two parties. Uh, I don't think Twitter will give up its trial date just on Musk's word. It's going to need more certainty about closing. Uh, The company might be worried about Musk's proposal being a delay tactic because he has already tried to unsuccessfully postpone the trial twice. While some logistical and legal hurdles remain, Musk could be in charge of Twitter in a matter of days, however long it takes him and his co-investors to line up the cash. A letter from Musk's lawyer dated Monday and disclosed by Twitter in an SEC filing said Musk would close the merger signed in April, provided that the Delaware Chancery Court enter an immediate stay of Twitter's lawsuit against him and adjourn the trial scheduled to start on October 17th. It's unclear exactly what Musk intends to do with Twitter once he takes over, but one thing is for absolutely certain. He does not like people who don't work hard, and he does want to turn Twitter into a more profitable company, which in today's day and age is apparently a bad thing if you look and see what people are saying. In an exchange between he and Jason Calacanis, they discussed an immediate profitability move of skimming approximately 5,000 employees off the top. They also discussed requiring a mandatory two days in the office, which would result in an automatic 20% voluntary exit because who, who goes to an office anymore? Musk talks about how stupid Twitter Blue and its features or lack thereof are. 
And one revealing statement, though, is when both men say, perhaps we shouldn't discuss in Twitter DMs, indicating that what's said in private is not kept private. And that's something to think about. Eugene Yu, the CEO of the software firm Conic, has been arrested in connection to the storage of data servers in China. Yu was arrested early Tuesday just outside of Lansing, Michigan, after prosecutors alleged he improperly stored the information on servers in China. Yu, who is the chief executive officer of a company named Conic, is expected to be extradited to Los Angeles in the coming days. Conic allegedly violated its contract by storing critical information that the workers provided on servers in China. We intend to hold all those responsible for this breach accountable. Um, that's the county district attorney, George Gascon, from Los Angeles. Prosecutors learned of the data breach this year through a separate investigation undertaken by the district attorney's office. He would not say what the other investigation was or exactly when his office became aware of the breach. Connick issued a statement that read in part, We are continuing to ascertain the details of what we believe to be Mr. Yu's wrongful detention by L.A. County authorities. Any L.A. County poll worker data that Connick may have possessed was provided to it by L.A. County and therefore could not have been stolen, as suggested. It was on Monday that the New York Times ran an article claiming that election deniers have made Connick the center of a conspiracy theory. The article claimed that these election deniers had used threadbare evidence to suggest that Connick had secret ties to the Chinese Communist Party and had given the Chinese government backdoor access to personal data about 2 million poll workers in the United States. The Times claimed that these allegations against Connick demonstrate how far-right election deniers are also giving more attention to the new and more secondary company groups. Connick, based in Michigan, has been contracted by L.A. County and Allen County, Indiana, to work on election logistics, such as scheduling poll workers. Connick, the Times stated, said none of the accusations are true, said that all the data for its American customers were stored on servers in the United States and has no ties to the Chinese government. The Times lamented the damage done to Connick's reputation by these election deniers, who claimed that the company had ties to the CCP. On Tuesday, the Times had to write that you had been arrested, and the data collected by Connick had indeed been stored on servers in China. True the Vote, an election integrity non-for-profit, stated that they were able to download the personal information of some 1.8 million poll workers from Connick servers in China. True the Vote passed this information on to the FBI. Holding the data there would violate Connick's contract with the country. The company itself appears to be standing by you and continues to blame election deniers for harming the company's reputation. A spokesperson for Connick told the Times that Connick had handed over all poll worker data to the county and that it therefore could not be stolen as suggested. However, the Times reports that the LA County District Attorney's Office said in an emailed statement that it had cause to believe that the personal information on election workers was criminally mishandled. 
In some much-needed good news, Micron Technology announced plans yesterday to invest up to $100 billion over the next few decades to build a massive semiconductor factory in central New York State, saying the Megafab will be the largest computer chip fabrication facility in the United States. The world's fourth-largest semiconductor maker said in a press release that it will break ground on the new project in Clay, New York, near Syracuse, starting this year, or I'm sorry, starting next year. The Boise, Idaho-based company expects to spend $20 billion by the end of the decade in the initial phase of development. Micron said upon completion, the site could be as large as 40 U.S. football fields and will amount to the largest private investment in New York State history. The major long-term project is expected to create 50,000 New York jobs, including 9,000 Micron jobs. The Senate Majority Leader said in a statement, this is our Erie Canal moment. Just as the original Erie Canal did centuries ago, the 21st century Erie Canal will flow through the heart of central New York and redefine upstate New York's place in the global economy for generations to come. The announcement of the major chip factory follows Congress's recent passage of the Chips and Science Act. The measure, signed into law by Biden in August, includes $52.7 billion for chip manufacturing and research and a 25% investment tax credit for semiconductor plants. The aim of the legislation was to bolster chip manufacturing in the United States amid prolonged pandemic-fueled shortages of semiconductors, which are largely produced overseas. Micron President and CEO Sanjay Marotra, I love these names, man, hailed the CHIPS Act as well as state and local incentives for making the project possible. The company said the state of New York is providing $5.5 billion, $5.5 billion in incentives over the life of the project and that federal grants and tax credits from the CHIPS Act are critical to support hiring and capital investment. The town of Clay and Onondaga County are also providing infrastructure support. Micron's investment will make New York Semiconductor Corridor into a major engine powering our economy and will supply made-in-New-York microchips to everything from electric vehicles, 5G, and defense technology to personal computers and smartphones. I personally will always give credit where credit is due. We needed companies in, to invest in domestic chip production so that we could be less dependent on foreign manufacturing. It will be interesting to see, though, with so much government funding flowing, how productive this project ends up being. Solyndra comes to mind. That is your Wednesday edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I hope you guys enjoyed today. We're just right at 15 minutes, which worked out good. Um, Liberty, ha- or I'm sorry, Liberty Library Book Club is this evening, and we are discussing the next, uh, I think, three or four, I don't even know at this point, uh, chapters of 1984. So you're welcome to join us on Twitter Spaces this evening at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, if that's something you're interested in. You guys take care and have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.